Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs, on what Canadians are focusing on in this federal election. Also, Michael Taub, who's a former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, on the election and on the challenges faced by the President of the United States. Kathy Catula confronted Justin Trudeau in February of 2017 at a town hall in Peterborough, Ontario. You probably remember that. Well, today, how does Kathy Catula feel about the work that Justin Trudeau has done? She talked about energy poverty to the Prime Minister back in Peterborough. She talked to us about how she views Justin Trudeau's job performance. And film expert Murray Pomerantz on The Joker. Let me get to my friend Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos, Public Affairs Canada, uh, joining us on polling that was done for Global News and where we stand in this election campaign. Sean, thank you very much for the time. Apologies for keeping you waiting. Where the, which, which polls that, that were released this week speak most to you about what this election is about? Well, I, I think it's the, the polling that we did on most important issues of the campaign, because I think there's a, a major disconnect between what we've been talking about and what's happening and what Canadians want to hear about. We've been stuck talking about photographs, passports and airplanes uh, instead of the things that uh, that really matter to Canadians, which is health care, climate change, affordability, taxes and the economy. Exactly right. And that's the sense I have. And I think that's what the sense that a lot of Canadians have. Let's talk about the issues that matter to the people, to the voters. They want to know what the positions of the parties are. They want to know what the commitments are. And they want to know, do we, they want to be able to sift through what the parties are promising and what we can believe. Health care. What are Canadians saying about health care? Well, uh, so just before I say what Canadians are saying about it, let me just reveal some truths uh, sure. to you and, and our listeners here. Uh, three in ten Canadians say they have a chronic condition. Two in ten Canadians are caregivers for an aging parent or another loved one. Sixteen percent say they have no access to a family doctor or a general practitioner, including one in four Quebecers. That's frightening. What have we heard from our leaders on any of these things and uh, you know i've been paying fairly close attention to the campaign as you have and uh, i I haven't heard anything about these things and so uh, i think canadians you know the reason that nothing has changed over the course of the campaign is because canadians haven't been inspired to change their mind about anything the the little blips we hear the the the, you know about sheer about trudeau about Singh, whoever it is you know, might change opinion by two points, then the next week it goes back to where it was before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I spoke last weekend with the president of the Canadian Medical Association, and we talked about the 5 million Canadians who have no family physician. I thought it was outrageous years ago when it was 4 million, now it's 5. And actor, actually, Dr. Buckman, Sandy Buckman, told me, told all of us, that his family doctor is retiring, so he's in the same boat. He's looking for a family doctor. Yeah, and it's a particular concern for people outside of of major urban centers. Generally, how it goes in Canada is if you are in a city uh, with a university that has a medical school, 
you know, what happens is people go and they study at the medical school and then they stay there because they put their roots down. But, you know, the vast majority of cities in this country and towns across the country do not have a medical school. And so it's disproportionately more rural Canadians who are who are suffering from lack of access to the system. Sean, there was a there was an interesting poll on commuters. There are millions of people who do this every single day. And all you have to do is take a look out of the streets or you look at the, the bus stops or you look at the the uh, the subway stops and you would get an idea of what's going on. What did you find out? Yeah, well, this was very interesting poll um, because we're often looking at, at differences in voting behavior by gender or by age. But, you know, I think the one thing even more than any of those demographic data that is a primary determinant of, of one's vote is whether they commute to work more than 10 kilometers by car or not. If you have a commute of 10 kilometers or even longer, the longer your commute, the more likely you are to vote conservative. If you're not a commuter or if you tend to take public transit, you are disproportionately more likely to be a, a, a liberal voter. So in Ontario, for example, when uh, Mr. Ford was elected premier last year, it came from the 905 and Daryl Bricker, our, our CEO at the time, labeled it revenge of the commuter. I, uh, I I looked at a commentary on Global News Today by your uh, colleague, Kyle Braid, and a commentary, the West knows what it wants in this election, um, but can the parties deliver? Very important, very important issue. Uh, I don't hear a lot talked about by the, uh, by the parties about issues that really, really resonate in Western Canada. Yeah, and uh, so the, part of the trouble is uh, just a, a numbers game. Um, even though uh, now more people live west of uh, Ontario than east of Ontario, you know, is suggesting that the west would have more more influence on the on the outcome of election. Uh, from Manitoba to Alberta, it is almost a foregone conclusion that those provinces will be painted blue. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, you know, when you're not in swing areas, the political leaders just pay less attention. Now, British Columbia, we've got all four uh, national parties uh, uh, poised to uh, to gain seats. And, and one of the things that's most important to British Columbians is affordability because the cost of housing in, in many areas, uh, in the greater Vancouver area in particular, uh, the cost of housing is, is outrageous. And so people are waiting for the leaders to, to say, well, what what can you do to help us out here? And, and they're still waiting. Sean, uh, we're th- what, just over two weeks out from voting. Monday it'll be uh, two weeks, debate day. Uh, is it any easier today than it was two weeks ago to look at what's likely to happen on the 21st of October and say with any degree of certitude that this is what we expect, or is it all still in the air? Uh, Well, I I think it's in the air. Uh, At writ drop, we were tied uh, in terms of national popular vote. At this particular juncture, we've got a slight lead for the the Conservatives nationally. Uh, But in Ontario, it's uh, it's only a two-point lead for the Liberals. Uh, in BC, the Liberals and the and the Conservatives are tied, uh, and in Quebec, the the Liberal lead is shrinking, uh, and the Bloc seems to have a little bit of momentum. So, in in Canada's most populous provinces, where there are the greatest number of seats likely to change hands, we have no uh, clarity on 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 what the impact is going to be at, at the riding level. Uh, you know, point uh, uh, signals at this juncture point to a minority government. 
Who's going to form it? I'm not sure. Seat modeling is pointing to the liberals, but we know that the conservatives get a ballot box bonus. So it, it all depends on whether people under the age of 35 show up and vote, because they are the, the, the primary backers of, of, of the Liberal Party. And if they show up and vote, the Liberals have a good chance of forming government. If they don't, then the Tories will take it. We are a regionally divided country, aren't we? Oh, a- a- absolutely. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, Ontario East generally is, is, is more red, uh, and west of Ontario is generally more blue, uh, with the exception of, of British Columbia, where it's sort of a, a rainbow of, of, of party colors uh, out there. But those, those regional cleavages uh, still, uh, still exist, for sure. Thank you so much for the time uh, today, Sean, my friend, and thank you for all the time you give us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ray. Sean Simpson, Vice President of Global Public Affairs, and they do a lot of great polling for Global News. With me now to talk about this election campaign, to share his thoughts on on the election and uh, what's going forward, and then look at what's happening in the United States with the President of the United States, Mr. Donald Trump, being pursued by the Democrats in their impeachment investigation, is Michael Taub, Troy Media um, syndicate of columnist. He's written for the Washington Times. His byline has appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Post. He's a radio and television pundit, of course, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, you remember that uh, January moment with Kathy Cattulo, I'm sure. I do remember it. I didn't write it down, but I do recall it, and I think it tugged at a lot of heartstrings for many people, uh, no matter whether they agreed or disagreed with her position or agreed or disagreed with Justin Trudeau's position. And it'll be interesting to see on your interview, which I guess follows mine, how she thinks about things two years later. By the way, I want everybody to know, when I spoke with Kathy, I asked her, I confirmed that she would be on the show before I asked her for her impressions of how the Prime Minister, or her impression of how the Prime Minister has done his job. I want that to be clear. Either way, whether she agrees with him or disagrees with him, and you'll have to wait to find out when she's on with this. Either way, she was coming on the show. So, Mr. Taub. Yes. Where are we in this election campaign? How, how, how ultimately satisfied or dissatisfied, disenchanted might you be uh, and a little hint that I have here mm-hmm. is a column by uh, mm-hmm. by someone. I think it could similar be similar name. I, yeah, I similar name, same yeah. spelling, same mm-hmm. spelling. Yep. Photograph looks like you. The most <laughs> ridiculous campaign in our political history. Well, I think it's a fair analysis to say. I mean, look, obviously, I'm a political junkie, much like you, Roy. I follow everything, I commentate on everything, and in, in our respective positions, we are intrigued by all the various ups and downs, the highs and lows, and the personalities, the parties. All those things matter to us, and they matter to a lot of Canadians as well, including many of your listeners. That's all perfectly fine. I think we can actually look at this particular election and isolate it, as I called it, as the most ridiculous so far, at least in our Canadian political history, just because of the tone and tenor that we've seen. All the nastiness, the daily mudslinging, the vicious commentary, and just the exposés, more so of Liberal Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Tory opposition leader Andrew Scheer than anyone else, but it's extraordinary what we've gone through from Mr. Trudeau with his, you know, his blackface, brownface controversy, his two planes controversy, for example, versus Andrew Scheer, who and this was after, actually, I wrote my column, has had a couple things pop up with the questions surrounding his, um, 
you know, his status as an insurance broker, where they had to basically go directly to Saskatchewan to confirm that they sort of followed an old-style procedure, and that's why he was saying it, even though most people who actually had their license would have argued that, well, he never finished the coursework. Why is he suggesting this? Plus, as well, we've had the issues surrounding his dual citizenship, which we knew nothing about, where he has U.S. and Canadian citizenship, which... To be perfectly honest with you, Roy, I don't have an issue with. I couldn't care less about this issue. I think it's perfectly fine, and I don't condemn or condone people who have it. As long as they stay loyal to this country and work for this country, as Mr. Scheer has done for most of his life, both as a child and an adult, I really don't have any concern whatsoever. But I think, unfortunately, what it goes back to, at least for people who are critical of Mr. Scheer, is they're frustrated that all these things are popping out that either A, the media never revealed, or B, that he never voluntarily told us. When you put all of that together, plus all the insanity of all the political parties have lost candidates for various reasons, either based on old social media posts about abortion and gay marriage or more, you know, more prevalent comments about Israel in the Middle East, We've seen an elderly couple, or at least a, a mother and her son, held up when they were trying to go to a People's Party of Canada rally, actually in Hamilton, Ontario, you know, which made some news. And actually, her son actually wrote a piece, I forget, for a local paper, the Hamilton News, I believe, where he sort of talked about it a little touch. We've just seen so much nuttiness. And Jagmeet Singh as well. Look what he encountered when he was going through Quebec. The area where the whole orange crush or that whole wave happened for the late Jack Layton in the 2011 federal election, where the NDP really broke through, encountered by someone who basically said he should take off his turban, cut his hair, and look more Canadian, which I'm paraphrasing a little bit. All of these things together in one election, as people say, it looks like more like a U.S.-style election than anything, which isn't a big deal. I mean, obviously, I like the U.S., and I realize it has its pros and cons, especially the way it runs campaigns. But, I mean, if you put all of that together and sort of think to yourself, my God, this has happened in one election, and we're not even finished yet. No, we're not. This is what drives people nuts. So if a political junkie like me, for example, is saying that this is the most ridiculous campaign, you can imagine the four-letter variety that other people are thinking at the no, same no, no, time. No, 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 no. I don't have to imagine it. I've heard it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. I know. But, and, and, but it's sad, isn't it? I mean, it we obviously, sad. you and I and others believe that politics is important, that we should be knowledgeable about our leaders, learn the party platforms, understand policies that either mean something to us, mean something to our families, our neighbors, etc. But when all this nonsense happens around it or swirls above our heads, it basically takes away from the real discussions, which are policy. We've had some policy discussions, but very little in the grand scheme of things. It's been more noise than anything else. You know, Michael, uh, Kim Campbell, and boy, she's uh, quite correctly taken a lot of heat recently for things she's tweeted, but she oh, said yeah. she did say something that was fundamentally correct in 1993. Political campaigns are no time to discuss issues, uh, and I'm just paraphrasing. But I, yeah. I was thinking about that over the last couple of days specifically, and I, as the as these, these campaigns and the political parties were yapping at each other, I thought all this is, what it's devolved into is a series of, and I've said this earlier today, mm -hmm. a series of minor skirmishes 
that the parties engineer that have ultimately very little to do with what the issues of the country are, but they engineer these skirmishes because they believe they can win the skirmishes on an individual basis, and by the end of the campaign, they hope to have won enough skirmishes that they'll win the election. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, the problem is that the minor skirmishes, which you correctly alluded to, unfortunately take on a major presence in themselves. Exactly. If there were just like a minor skirmish here and there, Roy, I don't think people would really, A, situate themselves on or focus that much, and B, worry about it as much. But when you have so many of them, based on what you and I have discussed, and there are others that obviously we haven't tackled, you put it all together and you sort of understand why more and more Canadians, like other people in the world, are becoming cynical of politics, which I think in this day and age, when we want to have more intellectual discourse rather than less, is a real sad state of affairs. Well, we have a responsibility then as Canadians to hold our political parties to account and hold the politicians to account and make them pay if they don't tell us the truth or if they try to maneuver us and manipulate us, we have the option to fight back. If 30-odd percent, 35, 36, 37 percent of the population decides not to vote, that all just, just gives them license to continue and get worse. No, you're absolutely right. I agree with you. And I think actually we're also seeing in some of the opinion polls when people are asked, who do you think is the best choice to be Canada's next prime minister? Andrew Scheer has moved ahead just uh, by a touch in recent days of Justin Trudeau, although based on what happened this past week, it might have flipped. The interesting thing, if you just look directly at Nano's research, both of them were under 30%. I think the margin of difference between the two is 0.7%. And keep in mind, when, 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 you, when you bring that number forward, keep in mind that Donald Trump's approval rating is about 40%. That's right, in the United exactly, States. which a lot of people <laughs> forget. And that's based on a man who over the past three years, whether you love him or hate him, has said a lot of things that could have poked it down to as low as in the 20s yet he still hovers around there. Let us take a quick break here, and then when we come back and continue with Michael Taub, we'll talk about the aforementioned President of the United States and the challenges he's facing from the Democrats as they continue with their inquiry, their impeachment inquiry, and Trump is not backing down for half a heartbeat. Michael Taub is with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist. His work has appeared in the Washington Times, byline uh, in the Washington Post, the New York Post, and a former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Back with Michael Taub after this. Michael, I'm looking at some headlines here. Uh, House Democrats subpoena White House for Ukraine documents. Democrats claim new momentum from intelligence watchdog testimony. House panel seeks Ukraine docs from Pence for Trump impeachment inquiry. McConnell vows to block Trump impeachment and fundraising pitch. I know exactly where where that one's where the, those stories are going. But what do you make of what's happening right now in Washington between the Democrats and Trump? And if I may add this, I don't for a second believe that the Democrats care about Biden. No, I actually don't think they do either. I mean, if Biden does become their uh, their their nominee for presidential candidate and they choose to run with him, that's fine, and they'll obviously back him. There will be some people who will be agitated with him, either because he's older or because he's out of touch or because he's made a lot of mistakes uh, during the campaign or whatever. But in the end, they'll, they'll coalesce around him. But, yeah, in terms of what's been going on right now, The impeachment inquiry, which I must say to you, as of right now, although 
if you look at the whistleblower account on its own and you, you look at the telephone call, the transcript of it, even though it wasn't word for word that the White House released after this whole storm started up, you might find them interesting things on their own as an element of political theater, no doubt about that. But when you combine the two, especially that the phone call, at least the way we have seen it and what we know about it, it's, you know, it's not great, but it's passable. I don't think it would necessarily be an impeachable offense. The whistleblower account, certainly some of it raises a lot of eyes and certainly raises some red flags. But if we know our history about whistleblowers, some of them tend to be selfless and patriotic, and others tend to be very selfish, either driven by political or personal gain. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. When you put everything together, it's going to be a very long exercise that will last many months. And most likely, Donald Trump will go the way that Bill Clinton and Andrew Johnson did before him, which is that the House of Representatives will impeach him by the margin that they wish, and then it will go to the U.S. Senate. In this case, Donald Trump is protected by a Republican-controlled Senate, and in, much like Johnson and Clinton before him, Trump will be exonerated and will, not, will be acquitted overall. And that is for a lot of different reasons, which I can sort of briefly go into. But the easiest one is that the Republicans' future is tied to their president's future. Whether you think Donald Trump is a Republican or a nominal Republican at best, which I think the latter probably suits him more, is meaningless. Trump, basically, if he, if he falls by his wayside or falls on his sword and the Republicans help him along in the Senate to do so, they can damage their own political futures, which means that they will lose control of the House of Representatives, which they don't currently have. They'll lose control of the Senate, and they could lose the White House as well, and their names would be completely destroyed. In the end, one way or the other, they are going to stick with Donald Trump, whether they are fans of his, of which some Republicans are, or if they feel privately that he is the worst thing that's since sliced bread that they've ever seen in the White House, which obviously people like Mitt Romney and others certainly probably feel that way if you speak to them in private. It's an amazing amount of political theater. It's fun to watch. It's intriguing to watch. Fox News, C um, CNN, MSNBC, and others are all having a field day with it, which is to be expected. But if anyone really thinks that Donald Trump is going to be impeached and tossed out of office because of many questions behind a call to uh, President Zelensky of the Ukraine, and because there are so many holes and gaps that need to be filled, really, you've got another thing coming. It's not going to happen. Uh, exactly correct. And, and even though the New York Times is writing that there's now the possibility of another whistleblower yes. coming forward. That was as predictable as tomorrow's Sunday. Yeah, I saw that. Right? And, and, but the, the Republicans have uh, some comfort. They, when they're looking at and assessing Donald Trump as the leader of the nominal leader of the party, right. uh, they can look at those numbers that are staying steady, 40% of Americans believe in his job performance, and ultimately they like what he's doing as far as the economy is concerned. So the, the Republicans do have significant backing from the American, from a, from a proportion of American people who say we like Trump. Exactly. And look, <clears throat> whether you love hate or hate Donald Trump, of which people obviously have a very black and white position about him, which is understandable, he has certainly, if you look at it fairly and don't get basically into the typical Trump derangement syndrome that some people suffer from, he has accomplished a fair number of things, both in terms of tax cuts, people that he has nominated for the U.S. Supreme Court, and some of the things he's done foreign policy-wise. 
you know, sure, he's acted like an economic nationalist when it came to the renegotiation of NAFTA, and that turned a lot of people off, including me as well. There are many things that he said about uh, minorities, women, and others in the past, including Hispanics, which have been directly, you know, make people worried and very concerned about what he says, or right. completely irritated and agitated by what they hear. Michael, I have to stop it there because of the clock, as usual. But thank you so much for the time, and uh, please, I uh, hope you'll come back before the election is over. Would be happy to. Thank and you many very times, much, Roy. Thank you. Michael Taub from uh, uh, Syndicator Columnist with Troy Media. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Kathy Katula, who confronted the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, at that Peterborough Town Hall in January of 2017. She made an impassioned speech to the Prime Minister, an impassioned plea, and he replied, how does Kathy Katula assess the job done by Justin Trudeau? Since then, you'll find out when we come back on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. How do you justify to a mother of four children, three grandchildren, physical disabilities, and working up to 15 hours a day, how is it justified for you to ask me to pay a carbon tax when I only have $65 left of my paycheck every two weeks to feed my family? I'm asking you to fix our financial system. We are a country in which uh, anyone with a quarter of your strength, of your drive, uh, should be uh, thriving and focused on how are you going to spoil your grandchildren uh, with all your energy as opposed to uh, how are you going to get through the week uh, or the day. So that was January of 2017 in Peterborough, Ontario at a Justin Trudeau town hall when Kathy Katula caught the attention of this country, caught the attention of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. She challenged the Prime Minister, speaking about her own energy poverty and the very tight financial margins she's living with, and challenged Mr. Trudeau on the carbon tax and implored the Prime Minister to fix Canada. Mr. Trudeau hugged Ms. Catula and spoke of how Canadians, with a, you just heard that, with a quarter of her energy deserve better. Well, I made myself a note in January of 2017 to call Kathy Catula and ask her to come on this program during the 2019 election campaign. I touched base with Kathy a couple of days ago. I asked her if she would be on the show before I asked her what her view is of the job the Prime Minister has done. Either way, I was going to invite her to come on the show. Kathy, thanks so much for making the time. Thank you, Mr. Green. It's nice to be on your show. I'm truly honored. Well, please call me Roy. Roy. <laughs> Okay. So why did you make, because it was an effort for you to get to that town hall in January in Peterborough in 2017. Why did you make that effort? Um, well, I was, you know, a single mom, grandma. Um, none of my children were living at home. People said they were, but they weren't. And I had saved, like I, when I said in that town hall, I saved for, you know, worked hard, saved, um, bought my home. I'd been in it for about three years at the time. And the year prior, everything just started getting more and more expensive. And I was just so um, tired of being tired. Like, I felt like I had basically almost lost hope. Like, I was going to lose my home. And, you know, it was between paying hydro bills and the mortgage and living check to check like millions of Canadians. And so what happened is I seen a post on uh, Facebook that uh, Mr. Trudeau was coming to Peterborough. And if you had a question for him, to respond through Marion Monseth's website. And that's how it all came about. I responded. I actually responded there three times. And 
you went through a series of like three or four questions and it went to another screen and then it says, oh, you'll receive an email confirmation shortly. I never got that email confirmation. The fourth time I got an email back from her, it said they were full. But when I got there, my name is on that list. I wasn't supposed to be that that day and well, the rest is history. So how surprised were you that you actually had that exchange with Mr. Trudeau? You didn't just get up and, 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 and ask him a question or make a statement like so many other people do in the town hall. This became very impassioned, and I believe that you were speaking for millions of Canadians who are not only in energy poverty but living from paycheck to paycheck, and you're still speaking for, for Canadians. So how surprised were you that it developed the way it did? Um, well, I'm quite religious, and I think there's a lot of angles at play that day. Uh, I actually went that day, like, I thought it wasn't, I wasn't able to get in, because I never got a response from the Liberal office, of course, uh, because part of, the, part of the sign-in process was to check a box whether you were Liberal, Conservative, or whatever. I had never voted before. I hadn't supported any party, so I left the box right. So I had never intended to be in that town hall. I thought I was going to be attending a protest for hydro out on the sidewalk. <laughs> I was the only person that showed up. So I got in line, and I was at the front of the line, and... I do have a physical disability. I am partially paralyzed and then I drop foot in one leg. So I was getting squished between the storm doors in the middle of January, and somebody let me in. And the shocking part was, is they said, well, go register, you know, give me your name. My name was on that list. My name was on that list the whole time, and I never got any email confirmation. So that just tells you how dirty politics are. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? That really speaks volumes. So remind us, please, what it was that you were asking Justin Trudeau to do as the new prime minister. Well, he was a year and a bit into into his tenure, but what were you asking him to do? Well, I didn't want him to add a carbon tax. Um... One of the one things that got me really upset is I, like I said, my hydro was outrageous. I had pulled in to get some groceries at actually Giant Tiger, and I got a phone call from my propane company, and I paid like a certain amount each month, and they were like, we can't fill your tank until you come and pay another $55 or something because of the carbon tax. So then I'd gone home, and that Facebook thing came up, and it was just the timing of everything. I thought, well, I'm off the next day. I got a couple dollars for gas. Um, you know, let's see if I can get in. So... So what I wanted from him was to not burden us with a carbon tax because our food goes up, our gas goes up. You know, um, to him, a few hundred dollars or even fifty dollars or a thousand dollars a month is nothing. But for most Canadians, like I'm speaking for millions of Canadians, an extra hundred dollars is you know food off our table, food from our children, and you know we shouldn't be punished for driving to work. We shouldn't be punished for wanting to take our kids to soccer or baseball. And basically, to me, a carbon tax is a punishment. <laughs> you know, and Kathy, uh, <laughs> and, and when they say, look, with uh, you'll get the money back because we're going to rebate it, do you believe them? No. <laughs> you might get a little back, but no. <laughs> I know um, they say, what, a single person would get like maybe $150. Well, I'm sorry, I paid out that in three months, <laughs> not 12 months. So, no, and if that was the case, if they're going to give you your money back, and you, what's the point of taking it in the first place? <laughs> it's interesting no. you say that because that is what uh, Brad Wall said when he was the premier of Saskatchewan in a meeting with the other premiers and the Prime Minister Trudeau when, uh, when, when Mr. Wall said, so what you're going to do is you're going to take money from the farmers in Saskatchewan and then you're going to give it back to them, so what's the point? And there was no answer from Mr. Trudeau, at least not one that made coherent sense to me. Now, what about the job that he has done 
Ask Prime Minister of Canada. You're, you have the right to vote. I hope you will vote on the 21st of October. Uh, yeah, this has been, you know, when I spoke that day, um, I did get like a lot of, I, had not, I got death threats and threats to burn down my home and everything, but I got a lot of nasty messages on Facebook because I admitted I'd never voted before. And like, people say, it's your fault. You know, people like you, that's why our situation's in the situation it is. And they were absolutely right. Millions of people are, you know, they think, oh, my vote doesn't count, so they simply don't vote. But that's, I don't think like that anymore. Every vote counts. Everybody needs to get off that couch. Everybody needs to get to a voting station. If you're a citizen of Canada, you need to vote. You need well to get said. this sinking ship back out of the water and floating again. Well said. Now, what do you think of the job he's done? Well, when I attended that town hall, I didn't even know much about him. He was a man on a stool that could fix a problem. So I didn't know, know much about him at all. What I know about him in the last two years... It's just pathetic. <laughs> I'm sorry, but he's been a, an embarrassment to Canada around the world. Um, I feel for his wife. I feel for his children and all the harassment he goes through. But to me, he has sold out Canada. I'm sorry. To me, I hate to say it, but I think he's a traitor, a traitor to Canada. That's a very strong word. Well, it is. And, and you know, I don't say it lightly, but I don't like to believe it, but, you know, he... You look around at all the towns, and we have homeless tent cities everywhere, <laughs> you know, and they're full of Canadians. They're full of seniors. They're full of veterans. You know, they, they, people feel like they've been forgotten. Okay, what I, feel, what I feel like I'm hearing you saying is he's let down the values of Canada. Yeah. Well, he said, you know, like Canada doesn't have, he's, you know, basically we don't have secure borders. Um, we don't have, you know, our seniors and our veterans are treated like second-class citizens. This should be, like, at the top of his list. You know, when he told that veteran, oh, you're asking for more than we can give, I'm sorry, I cried for that veteran. Like, I think I had multiple surgeries. <laughs> How could you say that to anybody? And he said it's so cold and calculated. But it was exactly like what he said to me at that town hall. Like, don't worry, ma'am, my carbon tax doesn't kick in for another two years. And when I think of Justin Trudeau, those are the only two promises he's kept, burdening us with the carbon tax and shutting down our oil fields. You know, and he's done exactly what, you know... Let me ask you. Let me ask you this: What are you yes. hearing from the other parties? Are you hearing anything from Mr. Shear, from Mr. Singh, from Ms. May that makes you feel like maybe they deserve your vote, maybe they deserve your attention? Are Are you cynical of the whole process and all the parties? Um, I probably, like I said, politics is new to me. The last couple of years, I, Ms. May, uh, when she said that she wouldn't support oil and gas and all that, no, I, I have no for her. Um, thing I. I think he's a nice guy. He's got some excellent things. And Maxime Bernier, um, I think he's been treated rotten. You know, he's a citizen, and he should have a right to debate. He, you know, all his rights, it's like just because you have a small percentage of, you know, voters, he should have a chance to have a voice. Every Canadian should have a he'll voice. Be in, he'll be in the debate, debate on Monday night. Mm-hmm. Right. But are you, are, is, does anybody inspire you? Does any platform inspire you? Does anybody uh, sound to you like you should just go out on, on the 21st of October and vote for them? Um, well, no. Um, you know who inspired me? is Patrick Brown. That's the first time I ever got into politics. Patrick Brown was speaking here at the venue in Peterborough mm-hmm. uh, and invited me to come see him at the venue. And he thanked me for you know, standing up and speaking for everybody in Ontario. And I, I'm a strong conservative now. And it was that day I realized... You know, what a conservative is to me is a middle-class person who only wants best for, you know, the family, not make their rich richer. <laughs> well, I have to say this to you, Kathy. Yes. I'd like to put you in as a, one of the moderators in the debate on Monday night. 
But, right? but I don't have that kind of influence, so I can't do it. But <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Fine, thank you for having me. And it'll Beautiful be day. enjoy it. Our conversation is going to be on the podcast yep, of the and show. And I'll be voting Andrew Shearer on the twenty first. <laughs> there you go. All right, Kathy. All thank right, you. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Good talking to you. Bye bye, Kathy Gatola. Gatola. Uh, who was, um, yeah, at the town hall, obviously, in January of 2017, and her assessment of the job of the prime minister. And interesting conversation. So I wanted to make sure that we, uh, we did that before we vote on the 21st. Joker the Movie. So what does this film represent in pop culture? And should moviegoers think twice about seeing the film, particularly given the fact that uh, violence has been threatened in some areas? Police uh, have warned those seeing Joker to be aware of what's going on around them. And uh, there was uh, a screening of Joker stopped. In fact, the theater was closed in Huntington Beach, California, on Thursday, I think it was, because police said there was a credible threat. And uh, it has some people looking back to uh, Dark Knight, the film, and, uh, you know, what happened, the horrific shooting in Aurora, Colorado. I think it was 12 years ago. Murray Pomerantz joins me, independent scholar living in Toronto, considered one of the foremost experts on film. He's the author of many books on film, his most recent, Virtuoso, which is about film acting, and uh, Dream of Hitchcock. It's been a long time since we've talked, my friend. Oh, too long, Roy, way too long. How are you keeping? Very well, thank you, except the head cold, okay. as so, you can hear. Yeah. Let me, let, me, let me run this guy down for a minute. If, do you mind? Running who down? Uh, this guy with the green hair and the purple outfit. Oh, okay. Okay. This guy was born... 1940, April the 25th of 1940, first appearance. I'm looking at him. He's a kind of a grotesque character with very misshapen mouth, which is slightly reminiscent of Connie Veidt in that movie, The Man Who Laughs, where the mouth seems to be permanently stitched open, and some sleepy blue makeup under his eyes and slight greening in his hair. Now, this is the beginning, 1950, 1940. 1954, Frederick Wortham, a German, uh, I believe German or Austrian psychiatrist, writes a book called Seduction of the Innocent, in which he makes the case that comic books are dangerous for children. This is really the beginning of the comic book moral panic, because a comic book t- cost you 10 cents, so anybody could go get one. And so the problem was the kids would go out, get comic books, and be perverted and warped by the comic books. This problem of worrying about people being warped because of what, the pop, what, what pop cultural artists show them goes all the way back at least to the early 1920s. But at any rate, it attached itself to the Joker. And then there were four interesting and very different representations. Cesar Romero, you'll remember him. No, I don't. You don't remember him? No. Oh. A very large man, I'd say six foot four, big broad shoulders. I believe he was Latino, had a fantastic mustache, 
and often played romantic roles. But he took this on for the television show, 1966, the 26th of January. He played the Joker as someone who was just having fun goofing around the city. Okay. I do, I do remember the name now. Yeah, go ahead, Mario. Yeah. Okay, he played it, and, and they did it with a lot of green in the hair, not quite so much on the face. Yeah. And basically a character who was, you know, maybe a little immaturely having fun, but that's what he was doing. Then we, we, we jump up to June the 23rd, 1989, pretty much at the same time as the dissidents are protesting in Tiananmen Square. And we get Jack Nicholson doing this weird joker he keeps emphasizing that he used to be dead in other words there's a kind of joker slash zombie that i remember well yes yeah and he's very exhibitionist does a lot of facial gestures and he's got makeup that exaggerates facial gestures which is what clown makeup will do but he's really working it and they do a lot of wide angle close-ups of the face to make it even more so it's very much a kind of exhibitionist you know what he's doing wrong is showing off way too much. He's very egotistical, probably a narcissist. Jump forward. July the 14th, 2008. Karadzic is arrested in Serbia, and Heath Ledger is shown on screen. He died six or more months previously. It's very much like a replay of the Jimmy Dean story in Rebel Without a Cause, where he made a tremendous appearance on screen, but he, he was already dead by the time that happened. So that's what happened with Ledger. Ledger plays him as a vicious psychopath. There's no question about it. It's the kind of hissing quality of the mouth. It's the glare in the dark glare in the eyes. He wants to hurt people. He wants to destroy things. He wants to take the world apart. And now, as of yesterday, we have Joaquin Phoenix playing the Joker as someone who's basically a victim. And I don't have to tell you why that's current. What do you think? What do I think? Yeah. Why is, it, why is he playing a victim? Well, I mean, victim is the new uh, poster child for the, the, the 2020s. Okay, yeah. Everybody's a victim. Everybody's yep. a victim. Everybody's a victim. They're remembering so, things that happened in childhood. So, 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 so he's does, a victim. So, so Murray, does this, yeah. does this start to connect with, and I'm, I'm, I'm following what you said, and I find it fascinating yeah. that there have been yeah. all these different portrayals of the Joker going back yeah. to 1940, but does this start to connect with the certain amount of apprehension and fear that's been expressed about going to see the Joker and the fact that they would close a theater in yeah. California because the police say there was a credible threat? Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> the, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Murray. Keyword police. Police say. Because, you see, the police don't always say something mm -hmm. about the history of gun violence, but sometimes they do. Mm -hmm. So what's really gone on here is that there was a very bad event on July the 20th, 2012, in Colorado. Twelve people killed, a whole bunch more, many more wounded. Right by a medical student, of all things, yeah. okay, a failed medical student. So he goes into the theater at midnight screening of the Christopher Nolan Batman film. Mm -hmm. Did he intend to see the Batman film? We don't know. He went into a midnight screening. That's what was there. That's what happened. And now what's happening is that the police are deciding to associate the code word Batman or Batman slash Joker with lethal murder and now they're suggesting be careful before you go to see this film there's no link between the joker on the screen and people going around killing one another 
any more than there's a link between anything on the screen and people going around imitating it. I mean, you do get nutcases once in a while imitating characters on the screen, but it's not a general phenomenon. Well, let me ask you people this. Know, you know, do, do you watching a movie. Do, do, you, do you think that this movie is going to be the success that warrants all of the attention that it received prior to its release? Well, you know, it might now become an underground classic, exactly mm-hmm. because of the police warning. That's possible. Uh, yeah, I was thinking uh, that, too. I thought that there, there's going to be a certain uh, percentage of the population that will find that uh, irresistible. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're not going to find that this is as popular as La La Land was. Mm-hmm. It's not going to have that kind of popularity. But those who are addicted to comic books, addicted to Batman, addicted to this character, right. or interested in Joaquin Phoenix, because he's been coming along for many years, but doing somewhat characteristically character roles or artistic roles. I'm thinking of his character role in Gladiator and his artistic role in The Master. He's definitely showing everybody okay. that he's really good, but... Now he's picked up something that could have tremendous pop cultural currency. He could he could make a lot of money and make a big name. All right, Murray, I uh, we're going to have you back. It's been way too long, so we have to yeah. do this a little more regularly and we'll talk about film and 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 uh, poach all of your information and, and your knowledge. Whatever, poach away. It's so nice <laughs> to be with you again. Thank you, Murray. Truly. Good talking to you, uh, Murray Pomerantz, independent scholar living in Toronto. His most recent books are Virtuoso. It's a film about acting and then dream of a dream of Hitchcock. When we come back, Lear Samfiru, partner at Samfiru Tamarkin LLP. He's a labor and employment law specialist. So that's at the firm. And uh, Lear is an employment law specialist. Uh, they're in Toronto, Vancouver, and Ottawa. And we'll talk about, we'll talk about the law and the Prime Minister of Canada. It's the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 